as we continue our one word study tonight, you know, the words that we've been looking at over the last few weeks all have to do with the concept of atonement. And that's a word itself, if you've peeked ahead, that we're going to be looking at in some detail next week. There are a lot of different theories about how the atonement works that Christian thinkers have been trying to work out for, well, for the last 2,000 years. And we might talk about those some next week when we talk about atonement more specifically. I don't know. I haven't really decided yet. But it's really important, I think, for us to note that Scripture doesn't actually have any theory of atonement. That's left for theologians to try to work out when we take what Scripture does say and try to piece those little bits together and and compile it into something that's systematic. And I think it's important for us to approach anything uh, that's a big-picture theory with uh, a degree of caution because frequently Scripture will just declare a truth it will state something that's fact without actually explaining to us precisely how that particular thing works. And when it comes to Jesus' death and his resurrection and its saving significance for us, that's one of those things that it doesn't tell us precisely how that's accomplished. There, there's no systematic explanation of exactly how and why Jesus' death achieves our forgiveness of sins, why God uh, accepts that as something that provides us forgiveness of sins. There are only images, only metaphors, only these signposts that act as guides. They point us in the right direction, but they're pointing us to something that's in large measure beyond our comprehension. And that's why these words that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, including our word tonight, redemption, these are really just attempts to explain what is really inexplicable in terms that we can grasp by analogies with things that we're familiar with. So justification, for instance, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that's the language of the law court. It likens what Jesus' death accomplished to uh, a criminal being pardoned. Or what we looked at last week, propitiation. That's language taken from the world of sacrifice. Now, that might not be so familiar to us these days, but that was very familiar in the ancient world. And so it likens Jesus' work to an offering that appeases the deity. Well, the same thing is true of redemption. This is a common image, uh, particularly common in the ancient world, of freeing someone or rescuing someone by means of paying a price. But we have to remember that all of these images are only shadowy glimpses of the truth. We can't press them too far and mistake these symbols of reality for the greater reality that they represent. These are only illustrations. They don't actually explain how reality works. And I bring all that up 
because redemption in particular has been prone to being pressed uh, too far in trying to explain the death of Jesus historically. Because when we talk about redemption, the idea of ransom comes into view. That is a, a price that you have to pay in order to buy this person back, to release them from bondage or from captivity. Now, that's one way to view the atonement, and that's right, and that's biblical. I mean, there's a reason we're talking about it tonight. Church fathers, beginning with Origen, talked about the atonement in terms of ransom. And some have done that. This was a popular view of speaking about the atonement in the early church, and, and that's all good, and that's biblical insofar as it goes. Right up to the point where we start looking for explanations, trying to fit this all together and go beyond what Scripture has said. Because, well, think about it. If Jesus' death is paying a ransom, you have to pay a ransom to somebody, right? So who is that ransom paid to? Well, it must be the devil. That's the way it was thought about. And if we're paying a ransom to the devil, well, what sort of claim did he have on human beings that he need to be paid off to begin with? And you see the problem that we get into here, on and on and on, this sort of speculation goes. But the problem with some views of ransom theory of atonement, of redemption, is that it, well, it elevates Satan to a place he shouldn't really have where he almost has a, a power over God where God has to buy him off. And then on the other hand, some versions of it make God into almost this sort of trickster where Satan has to be paid and God bargains with him and he's going to pay him off at the sacrifice of Jesus even though he knows that Jesus is not ever going to, to stay dead. You see, any one of these images can be pressed too far. That's the only point I want to make here. It's really hard for us to give biblical answers to unbiblical questions. When we start asking questions of the text that it's not even designed to answer, that's when we start to get ourselves into trouble. So to emphasize any one of these metaphors, whether it's justification or propitiation, uh, or redemption above the others. You know, a lot of evangelical theologians today, they talk about the atonement almost solely in terms of, of sacrifice, in terms of Jesus' death, uh, his, his blood atoning for us and propitiating God. Well, that's true, but you can take that too far too because how do we account for Jesus defeating the powers and the principalities then? How do we account for uh, Jesus showing us what true humanity should be the way Scripture says he does? And so what we really need to do, rather than exalting any one of these or pressing any one of them too far, saying something that Scripture doesn't say, we need to try to view all of these as just little bits and pieces, as images, as metaphors, and let them each stand on their own. I think it's best to appreciate these like, like facets of a gemstone, each one of them reflecting some light, each one of them giving us a, a glimpse of something, a larger whole that is, is beautiful, but each one of them in itself is incomplete. It's only a, a partial glimpse, an angle of something that's beautiful. So with all that said, what sort of light does redemption, that image, throw on our salvation? There are two main terms in the Old Testament that are associated with 
redemption. Uh, one is ga'al. That means to redeem, to deliver. In some cases, it's translated as uh, to avenge. It's also related to the term that's used of uh, the kinsman redeemer. So it can be translated as to act as a kinsman. Variations of this word are used some 90 times in the Old Testament. So this is a frequently used word. I think the kinsman redeemer in particular helps us to understand conceptually what we're talking about here. The kinsman redeemer was the relative who was responsible for redeeming, buying back family members when uh, they'd gotten themselves into debt and so they'd sold themselves into slavery. Or maybe they'd sold off part of the family land to try to pay off the debt. The kinsman redeemer was also responsible for seeking out justice, avenging in some cases when that was necessary, when no one else was able to do it. Uh, so just for one example, this was in our reading this week, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz acted as a kinsman redeemer for Ruth when he went, and you know there was another man in front of him, you remember, that was actually his role, but they went through the official legal channels, and Boaz took it upon himself, and he uh, redeemed that family through raising up sons then and through providing for them. The other word that's commonly used in the Old Testament is pawdaw, and that means to buy off or to ransom. Uh, by extension, and that's what it literally means, but by extension, it means to act for the deliverance of someone to, to intervene on their behalf uh, more generically. So literally to buy off, but then just to deliver someone generally. Both of those terms are pervasively associated with paying some sort of price in order to accomplish redemption. So for instance, you look at uh, Exodus chapter 13. And what we see in Exodus chapter 13 is that the firstborn of every creature born in Israel, uh, whether it was human or whether it was animal, all of these belong to the Lord. Exodus 13 verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and a beast, is mine. Now, firstborn clean animals were sacrificed on the altar. That's the way they were given to God. But obviously, unclean animals couldn't be offered on the altar. And I think it goes without saying that uh, human firstborns were not sacrificed to God in that way. So if you look a little bit later in the chapter, uh, a lamb, a clean animal, was substituted for a donkey, an unclean animal. You look down in verse, well, you could look in verse number 12, where it restates the principle we just saw, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord. And then verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. So an unclean animal consecrated, devoted to the Lord, but that unclean animal could be redeemed since it couldn't be offered in sacrifice, uh, it could be redeemed by offering that clean animal. And then if you didn't redeem it, because it was devoted to God, it had to be killed. You had to break the neck. If you go on, you see that firstborn human beings were also devoted to the Lord. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And you can see in verse 15 uh, that this is tied to God's deliverance from slavery 
starting in verse 14, actually, he says that God brought us up with his strong hand. But specifically, verse 15, it, it ties it to that uh, tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my sons I redeem. So the firstborn sons, human beings, were devoted to the Lord, but they were redeemed because obviously God doesn't accept human sacrifice. And if you look a a little bit later, if you look at Numbers chapter 18, we find that the price for redemption was five shekels that you paid to the priest. And that was how those firstborn sons were redeemed. In both cases, what I want us to see is that there was a provision made for redemption And that the way that was achieved was a price, a ransom, was paid so that those living beings could be redeemed. There's similar provisions in the law for the redemption of land or of property. If you remember this from reading up, studying on the law of Moses, the land was not to be sold in perpetuity. Your land was supposed to stay in your family. So if for any reason you had to sell it at a certain point, the idea was that at some point it's going to revert back into that original family's name. So means of redemption, a process was put in place to see to its return. So if someone sold the family land because of poverty, there were three means that were set up to secure its redemption. For one, that kinsman redeemer that we've already talked about, uh, the goel, which is a form of that word gaal. Those two words are related. The goel, that kinsman redeemer, could act on your behalf to redeem that land, to buy it back and to get it back into the family. On the other hand, the second way you could get it back is if somehow maybe you were destitute, you had to sell it, but now you have the money to get it back. Well, there was a provision made where it was supposed to be offered back to you. If you could buy it back, then you could. If neither one of those things were possible, if you couldn't buy it back and if there was no kinsman redeemer to act on your behalf, then the provision was in the year of Jubilee, all of the land that had been sold would be returned back into the ownership of that original family who possessed it. We could say a lot more, but just to, to sum up the Old Testament idea that we've seen in these couple of images here. One, redemption is the recovery of persons or of things. Two, a price must be paid for that recovery. Some ransom has to be given. And then three, often a human intermediary, the goel, acted to achieve that redemption. In the New Testament, this familiar imagery of redemption is applied then to what Jesus did. Uh, The Greek words uh, for redemption are uh, lutrosis and apolutrosis, which are related. I mean, the latter one is just an intensified form of that first one. So essentially, they have the same meaning. But It means a a deliverance affected by means of paying a ransom. That's used especially, and it was used this way in, in secular Greek, especially for buying back slaves or captives, whether you were captured by 
soldiers in a war, you're a prisoner of war, or captured by brigands or, or pirates or, or whatever. It, it was used just generally for all types of buying back people like that. Uh, in fact, in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that Brooks read a, a few moments ago, where Paul talks about the fact that we're bought with a price, it's almost certain that Paul has the slave market here in mind when he talks about being bought that way. And you see that uh, from the way he uses that exact same terminology in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, down in verse number 23, he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants or slaves of men. So he says it again. You're bought with a price. Don't be enslaved to men. So when he talks in chapter 6 about belonging to God, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, he almost certainly has the slave market in mind, and that was a common frame of reference for these terms for redemption when they were used in the secular world. But it's also used in the New Testament for redemption from transgression, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. If we go to Romans chapter 3, and this is a, a passage that, We've looked at a lot over the last two weeks, and it's fascinating because it brings all of these terms in parallel, justification, propitiation, etc. In verse number 23 of Romans 3, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we see there that redemption is in Christ Jesus. And if you look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14, we see that that redemption in Christ Jesus, Paul talks about it there, in terms of the forgiveness of sins. The redemption we receive in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. So if we put all of this together, what does the imagery of redemption have to teach us about the nature of the atonement, of the work that Jesus' death and his resurrection accomplishes. Well, the first thing is that the work that Jesus came to do was one of redemption. Now, I want you to think about this, what this means when we're talking about being redeemed from sin. We were enslaved by sin and by death, but Jesus freed us from that. Now, I'm not sure we really appreciate just how significant that imagery is in our modern world when uh, slavery is not a, a commonplace in our society the way that it was in the ancient world. But whether we're talking about uh, Jews who always had this in the background of their uh, experience, the fact that God had delivered them, brought them up out of slavery in Egypt, or whether we're talking about the Greco-Roman world where about 50% of the people, give or take, were living in slavery, and this is something that we could all visualize, but this is intentionally meant to be evocative. We were in bondage. We were hopeless. We were helpless. We were in chains, and we couldn't do anything about that. Powerless against the forces of sin and death, but in Jesus, we've been set free. If we really think about that imagery, whether it's in terms of being a prisoner or whether it's in terms of being a slave, that is powerful stuff. But secondly, redemption requires a price to be paid, a ransom. We saw in the Old Testament that the price for 
redeeming a donkey was a lamb to be sacrificed. The price for redeeming a human firstborn son was five shekels. Well, the price for redeeming us from sin was Jesus' blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, for instance. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed. Doesn't use redemption there, but there's that word ransomed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with a, of a lamb without blemish or spot. So if we can't necessarily appreciate fully what it means to be enslaved by sin, surely we can appreciate the price that was paid to secure our redemption. If that bondage, that slavery of sin and death was not so terrible, then God wouldn't have paid such a a dear price as the blood of Jesus. That was the price of our ransom, our redemption. Third, and I think this is really important, it's just like we saw with propitiation last week that what's remarkable about the biblical concept of propitiation is that God's the one who does the propitiating. That is, he needs to be appeased, but we couldn't do anything to appease him. Well, God acts to appease himself. The same thing is true of redemption. God is the one who does the redeeming. He's the one who buys us back out of sin and death. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. So God acts as our kinsman redeemer, our goel, to buy us back from sin and from death. Uh, I think of a song in particular that we sometimes sing that sums this up really well. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's precisely what we're talking about here. God acted to accomplish our redemption. And finally, what we see in our text that was read earlier, because we have been redeemed, we're to live a brand new kind of life. We're no longer under the bondage of sin and of death. And that carries with it some important ethical considerations. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, Paul says. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you need to go out and live in a particular way that's consistent with that redemption that the blood of Jesus has purchased. I think this is all really summed up for us well, a lot of these threads. In Romans chapter 6, Paul doesn't use the word redemption here, but conceptually we're talking about the same thing. Beginning in verse number 16 of Romans 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Hey, there's a good reminder of exactly what I pointed out at the beginning. I'm just making an analogy here. It's imperfect. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once we were enslaved by sin, but through the price that was paid by the blood of Jesus, we have been redeemed. We've been freed from that bondage. And now we have a choice. And what we need to do, rather than being that unwilling slave of sin with no hope, no power, no choice, is to choose to become servants of God. Live a life that's consistent with that. Let us all, those of us who are here tonight and who have been freed from the bondage of sin, let's choose to be those willing, obedient servants of the Lord. And if you haven't been doing that the way that you ought and you need to make changes in your life this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.